Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Mr. President, Harlow Giles Unger. Harlow Giles Unger, author of Mr. President, George Washington and the Making of the Nation's Highest Office. When you sit down to write a book about George Washington, how do you come up with an angle that hasn't been done a hundred times before? That's a very good question, Brian. Uh, What hadn't been done was how he became as strong a president as he was because he took office really as a figurehead. Uh, The Constitution uh, vested executive powers in a president, but it failed to define what executive powers were. And then it said uh, once he's in office, he's to execute the office of the president. That's what the Constitution says? That's what the Constitution said. Uh, uh, And it didn't didn't tell him what to do. Uh, in effect, he was supposed to do nothing. That's exactly what the founders intended. They had lived uh, for quite a few years under an absolute monarch, George III of England, and they were not about to uh, put another monarch, another George, <laughs> on the throne here in America. Uh, so they created a figurehead, and uh, when George Washington took office, he really had no powers. He, he was commander-in-chief of the armed forces but only Congress could raise troops and uh, go to war, declare war. So that left Washington commander-in-chief of no one and nothing. Uh, Congress, he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't nominate uh, the heads of executive departments and nominate judges, but they could only be actually appointed uh, or take office uh, or dismissed by, uh, by the Senate. Uh, so. He had no powers over those who would serve under him in the executive branch. And finally, they said, uh, the Constitution said he was to take care to execute the laws, but they gave him no law enforcement arm, and they didn't give him the power to arrest or imprison anybody. So he had absolutely no powers. He was a figurehead, except that his name was George Washington, (laughs) who had been commander-in-chief of the Continental Army and with a bunch of farmers defeated the most powerful army in the world. Uh, he, was, uh, you know, he was a man who galloped into a hail of musket balls in the Battle of Monmouth. Uh, this was, this was a, a man uh, shaped and, and formed in battle and war, and he wasn't about to become a figurehead. Well, he was present. He was involved with the Continental, uh, with the Constitutional Convention, so he, he knew was president of the Constitution, which meant he presided over and was president of the Constitutional Convention. Uh, but and had a hand in in, in in writing the Constitution. Was he involved with it? Oh, absolutely. Certainly behind the scenes, theoretically, a president of a convention or a Congress or any large meeting is not supposed to be a moderator. He's not supposed to debate or take sides. But uh, 
anyone in a convention can move uh, that they form a committee of the whole, which allows the president of the convention to step down and become a delegate uh, with someone else then presiding over the committee of the whole. And moreover, something else was going on in uh, in Philadelphia at that time. Uh, there's a little little place you may have heard of called the City Tavern. <laughs> and after the convention uh, meetings were over at the end of the day, all these fellows got together at the City Tavern. And uh, something like half the delegates had served under Washington during the Revolutionary War. So at the tavern, he told what he wanted. <laughs> really? Because you don't ever get that impression. He was actually arm twisting and absolutely, trying to steer the absolutely. convention. Absolutely. He was, he was commander-in-chief. He was the general. Uh, and uh, uh, so they knew what he wanted. But the problem was uh, you had, for the first time, uh, delegates from every uh, state but Rhode Island, except Rhode Island, and each one representing conflicting interests. You had small states versus big states. Uh, you had slave states versus free states. Uh, so you had all of these conflicting interests, and the question was, how are you, can we f uh, come up with a document to form a new government in which all of these states with conflicting interests will stick together and form a union? And the answer was no. <laughs> uh, the, the Constitution, in the end, was a, was a compromise uh, that uh, well, for example, s small states said that three big states, uh, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Virginia, uh, would dominate the, the, uh, the National Assembly, or House of Representatives, as it came to be called, uh, because they were the largest states. Well, the small states wanted equal power. In, under the Articles of Convention, each state had one vote, uh, but uh, nothing, nothing happened there as a result. Uh, so big states said, well, if we give every state equal votes, uh, nine of the states with a total population smaller than Virginia alone can dominate uh, the legislative process. So there was a compromise. They created two houses, uh, an upper house and a lower house, uh, the Senate having giving each state two votes uh, and thus, the, thus putting the small states on an equal footing with the large states. And in the House of Representatives, population, uh, count, uh, rep proportionate representation, which gave the Southerners a tremendous advantage uh, because they could count slaves in their population count even though the slaves couldn't vote. You have one quote in there where someone says, well, if you can count slaves in the South and they're considered property, why can't the farmers in the North count their... That's Elbridge Gerry, as some people pronounce it, of Massachusetts. <coughs> Uh, he argued against giving the uh, slaves the, uh, the uh, counting slaves in the population count because they were considered property, had no rights, and they couldn't vote. It meant that a handful of plantation owners would cast the votes for hundreds, sometimes thousands of slaves who had no vote. But so the they would southern count. plantation owners, the slave owners, wanted to count slaves as a whole person. Yes, and as the northern anti-slave or non-slave. They didn't want to count them at all. So they reached a compromise whereby the slaves were counted in the population as three-fifths of, of, uh, of the normal population count. So three slaves uh, counted, uh, five slaves counted as three votes for population count purposes. So George Washington was involved in all this, so he knew 
what all the discussion was around the role of the president, and yet he took the job. Well, he was the only one who could hold all these people together, who commanded the respect of everybody, North and South. Uh, he had, and, and this was the work of John Adams at the Continental Congress before we declared independence, uh, Massachusetts had already gone to war. Uh, they had 8,000 uh, uh, Minutemen, they were called, who had surrounded uh, the British Army in Boston and was laying siege to Boston. And Patrick Henry, as you know, said, uh, uh, our brethren are already in the field. What are we waiting for? Give me liberty or give me death. And so the rest of the nation went to war. But who was going to command these troops? Most of the troops were from Massachusetts. If we were going to get, or if, if Massachusetts was going to get support from southern states, Adams realized uh, we've got to have a southerner in there somewhere. And indeed, Washington was the only qualified American-born uh, delegate at the Continental Congress with military experience. The only two other people with military experience uh, were both uh, English-born. Uh, 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 General Gates, who won the battle at Saratoga, and uh, Arthur Lee, uh, Charles Lee, I'm sorry, Charles Lee, who, and they were British-born, and the, the Continental Congress was not about to put British-born people in charge of the Americans. So that's why Washington became commander-in-chief, and he earned, as commander, the loyalty of the troops on both North and South and the Middle States. What he, was it about Washington that he managed to do that? Because he lost a lot of battles. He lost a lot of battles, but he, he was not fighting the kind of war that uh, these amateur, uh, these armchair generals in Congress uh, thought he should uh, fight. There was no way a bunch of farmers were going to beat this British Army. And what, what Washington did, uh, Washington really invented uh, what we now call guerrilla warfare. He would let the, the British have the field, just pull back, 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 until the, the, the supply line uh, was stretched too thin. And then he'd attack the British. Uh, so, uh, and that's how he won the war. That's how we, we won at Yorktown. Lafayette was in charge of the, Reg the Virginians, uh, and uh, uh, Cornwallis was killing them. They burned Richmond, and Lafayette just kept pulling back, 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 back until he got to Fredericksburg, and there uh, Mad Anthony Wayne uh, was waiting for him with some uh, 1,300 additional troops and fresh supplies and everything, and now Cornwallis had stretched his, his supply line so thin that he couldn't even feed his soldiers. They had to retreat, and uh, Lafayette pushed him back onto this little peninsula, and the French fleet sailed in, blocked their escape, and that was the last battle of the war. Can, can uh, you but, talk a little bit about George Washington's relationship with the Continental Congress uh, and uh, who was in charge and... and uh, well, the Continental Congress, uh, there was no one really in charge. The Continental Congress was uh, just a meeting of representatives of these uh, colonies. And when they declared independence, each of these colonies then became an independent nation. Yeah, I wanted to point that out. You say in your book that if you asked a Virginian what country are you from? He'd say Virginia. Exactly. Considered it My to be country, country was Virginia. My country was Massachusetts. My country was whatever state you came from. They were independent states. Uh, their only relationship to the other states was they happened to be on the same continent. And uh, they formed a confederation of American states. Uh, after, after declaring independence, the Continental Congress uh, de 
uh, formed a confederation of American states, and in writing their uh, constitution, and you have to put it in quotes, it's called the Articles of Confederation, and it gave, uh, it, 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 it pledged to form a perpetual union, but gave uh, the United States no power, no, no federal powers at all. It couldn't collect taxes, uh, it could do nothing. It had absolutely no power. All uh, the powers and sovereignties remained in the individual states. And the, con the Confederation Congress now, as it was called, uh, was simply a, uh, a meeting place for these people to get together and discuss mutual problems. But a lot of them didn't show up a lot of the times. And, and they had difficulty understanding. First of all, it was, travel was just dreadful in those days. Uh, dirt roads and trails and everything. You had to go by horseback. Uh, uh, sleeping along the way in filthy inns, you'd sleep on the floor with other people. Uh, it, travel was dreadful. So these people were in a foul mood when they got together anyway and uh, tried not to come to this uh, Congress if they could avoid it. Did Washington think he was answerable to the Continental Congress during the war? Absolutely, because the Congress did commission him. The Congress did uh, asked the states to contribute troops to a continental army, and they commissioned Washington general. Was he always obedient to them, or did he ever blow them off? Or? Uh, he blew them off time after time. He had to because he needed money he need, for his troops, and the Congress couldn't raise any money. Finally, they were able to borrow money from France and some from Holland. John Adams went over and arranged these loans. That the Congress could do. Uh, but it couldn't tax the people, and the money that it, that it borrowed just wasn't enough to cover uh, the supplies, and the men in the fields were, were, were starving at times. They were unclothed, they froze to death, uh, there were no physicians around, and Washington had to bypass Congress and start writing to individual governors, uh, uh, appealing to uh, that governor's patriotism, uh, love of his country, uh, and uh, asking for money and supplies. Well, as you know, at Valley Forge, none, none of it came. And it was Patrick Henry who discovered that there was fraud going on, that the quartermaster general, who was a merchant from Philadelphia, uh, later governor Mifflin, uh, uh, had a big trading house. And the the, the supplies that were bought and put in his trading house, he secretly sold them on the open market and never, never delivered them up to Valley Forge. Uh, he was fired, of course, and then uh, uh, a new quartermaster general was appointed. Well, can you compare Washington's relationship with the Continental Congress to President Washington's relationship with the U.S. Congress? Well, he really had no relationship with the Continental Congress because uh, he, he paid lip service because they had issued his commission. Uh, the Congress of the United States, he was elected president of the United States. And Congress, uh, under the Constitution, was to be the, most, the more powerful branch of government. James Madison, who was one of the authors of the Constitution, uh, explained that, uh, and these are Madison's words, the executive uh, branch is not the stronger branch of government, but the weaker. Uh, the power was to be, the Constitution begins, we the people, and the power was to be placed in the people's hands, namely the House of Representatives. 
uh, that, that was the only directly elected body at that time. Uh, the senators at that time were not elected by the people. They weren't elected by the people until the uh, early 20th century. How were they elected? They were elected, the, the, each legislature of each state would appoint two members to be senators. Uh, so they really represented the interests of the state governments. The, the people were represented by uh, the House of Representatives. They elected the members of the House. And the Speaker of the House was the, the elect of the elect and was the, as powerful as the president. The, the Congress could override a presidential veto or a refusal to sign a bill, but no, no bill could become law without the speaker's signature, and that's true to this day. So from that standpoint, he was the most powerful man in government. The House of Representatives was also the nation's grand jury. Only the House could indict or impeach, as it's called, uh, a federal official, including the president. And only the House could uh, authorize, appropriate uh, uh, funds for spending. So how did President Washington take to being subservient to the uh, U.S. House of Representatives? Oh, he didn't. <laughs> His name was George Washington. And from the very first, uh, he, at one point he threatened to resign over the question of executive appointments. Uh, executive appointments were to be, uh, he was able to nominate executive appointment, but the Constitution uh, said this was only by the advice and consent of the Senate. Well, he didn't mind uh, getting the consent of the Senate on his appointments, but he wanted the right to fire anybody who didn't, uh, didn't obey him. He said, I'm chief executive, and the people who work for me are going to obey me. So did Congress have the idea that the Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, and the like would be answerable to Congress and the not con to the Exactly. President? They had been under the Confederation Congress. There was no president then. So the, the Confederation Congress had the role of both executive and legislative branch. Uh, but uh, the Constitution clearly made Washington a chief, or made the president chief executive, and he said, either I'm chief executive or get yourself another man. And they knew that uh, the nation was doomed, the government was doomed without Washington, and they backed, backed down and gave, passed a bill, which to, to, holds to this day, uh, giving the president the right to fire anybody, any executive appointee. Can you, uh, in your book, you have a scene where Washington goes to the Senate chamber and asks their advice and consent. Yeah. He, he is well, president uh, of the Senate. Can, and you, can uh, you describe this, that scene? This is really quite funny, uh, a very funny scene. Uh, if it weren't so uh, important in the history of our nation. Uh, but uh, the, uh, again, he, this was one of the presidential quasi-powers. He had the right to negotiate a treaty uh, with the advice of the Senate. And it could only become a treaty with the consent of the Senate. Uh, so uh, his Secretary of War, had uh, Henry Knox, had negotiated a treaty with the Indians, who were considered foreign nations in those days. Uh, and Washington goes to the Senate with this treaty in hand. And no one knew exactly what this advice and consent was in practical terms. So, so uh, and Washington walks into the Senate, and of course the, the presiding officer of the Senate is called Mr. President. Well, Mr. President, the presiding officer of the Senate, was Washington's vice president, John Adams. 
And Washington balked right at the beginning. It was not about to call his vice president Mr. President. And the senators didn't quite know what to do. John Adams was absolutely flummoxed. Face turned red. He was embarrassed. He adored, revered Washington. And uh, at any rate, they, they tried to proceed. And Henry Knox, instead of the president, read the first uh, paragraph of this treaty. And John Adams didn't know what to do. They had never done this before. So he turned to the Senate and said, do you advise and consent? Well, the senators looked at each other. They didn't know what, they didn't know what to do. After three or four paragraphs like this, they, they threw up their hands and decided to, to table this whole thing. And when it was Washington's turn to address uh, the vice president or president of the Senate, he thought about it and finally made an executive decision, a typical Washington decision. He walked out. And from that point on, neither he nor any other president has ever set foot in the Senate to address the Senate. When the president goes to address Congress, it's always a joint session of Congress, and it's always in the House of Representatives where the presiding officer is Mr. Speaker. And only the president of the United States is addressed as Mr. President. And that dates from 1789 with George Washington. Well, your book is, uh, and you have in the back is the, the kind of the appendix, the um, you call them the pillars of presidential power. And how many things do we take for granted today that the president does that originated with George Washington? Well, uh, there are seven broad pillars of power, as I call them in my book, uh, that all of which originated with Washington, uh, who, as I say, started out as a figurehead on paper. The Constitution made him a figurehead. But as in the case of the advice and consent rule, uh, each step along the way, he had to uh, decide how he's going to handle uh, individual crises. Now, the advice and consent situation wasn't a crisis, uh, but it determined what, how we're going to address the president and where the president, how the president is going to relate to the Congress. Uh, the first crisis uh, took place after that first Congress in 1789 recessed. Uh, unlike the present Congress, they actually passed a budget, but they had no money. Uh, all they they didn't there were no taxes in those days. The only source of funds would be on duties on imports, and the shipping season. By the time they recessed in uh, the fall of 1789, the shipping season had ended, so there was no there were no goods coming in, and therefore no duties coming in. There was no money, and they recessed and left. Uh, Washington to run the government without any money and, in effect, shutting down the government. I mean, can you imagine doing such a thing? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Washington took the law in his own hand, so to speak, and sent his Secretary of Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, uh, to local banks in New York City and borrowed money to run the government. Uh, the same thing, or uh, similar thing, happened uh, the following year. Uh, when Indians uh, in the West, in the Ohio Territory, uh, broke their treaty and uh, started attacking uh, settlers, uh, the militia out there fought a battle and lost, 
and uh, Washington now is faced with uh, raids, Indian raids along the frontiers. Congress was out of session. He had taken an oath to protect, preserve, protect, and defend uh, the Constitution of the United States, and he felt that this meant preserve, protect, and defend the nation and its citizens. He was not about to stand, by, stand idly by and see his fellow citizens slaughtered. So he raised troops on his own, as I say, Congress was out of session, and sent the troops to war and put down uh, the Indian uh, attacks. Now, he has no constitutional right to do that. The Constitution clearly uh, uh, reserves to Congress the power to declare war. Uh, Washington, in effect, uh, asserted this power himself and set a precedent. Now, he knew he was setting precedents for all his successors. Uh, and it, in the centuries that followed, we uh, forget about the uh, guerrilla uh, black ops, as we call them, but we have actually been involved in more than a dozen wars. And Congress has only declared a war five times. The War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Spanish-American War, and the two world wars. All the other wars were fought because the president sent troops to war on his own uh, volition, without, without the consent of Congress. And unlike Washington, many presidents have done so recklessly. Washington, when Washington sent the troops to war on his own recognizance, he was clearly defending American citizens. Well, at the time, was there anybody in Congress or in the states who raised a voice? Said, wait, wait, you Not can't really. Do this. Remember, there was no no communication in those days. And uh, by the time Congress met again, came together in the next session, it was a fait accompli. And uh, what Congress did to try to save its constitutional face when it got back and found out that Washington had sent troops to war and everything, they passed the Militia Act which legalized what Washington had done illegally. <laughs> uh, so that's how they got around that. Um, but uh, over and over and over again, Washington was faced with crises uh, that Congress was either unable or unwilling to deal with, and that he had to act to fulfill his oath uh, to the nation. Uh, the Congress was a madhouse. They, you had these uh, representatives representing all sorts of different conflicting interests, and they just couldn't get together on, on many things. They gradually ceded these powers to the president. There were anti-federalists who were in Congress? Yes, there were, were those who against opposed the Constitution, the Constitution and yet but they, they, were, they were a minority. But yet they ran for Congress. They certainly were. They were elected to Congress. Uh, remember, the, 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 the anti-federalists were staunch supporters of states' rights. And the states' rights uh, movement, we know, continued right into the late 20th century. Uh, many southern states still talk about states' rights. We still hear the term nullification, all of which is unconstitutional. Uh, but uh, this was a very, very strong movement. At the time, it was based largely on, on slavery. Uh, the southern states uh, wanted the right to have slaves. And the northern states were uh, uh, in favor of abolition of slavery. So this was a constant conflict, and uh, uh, even Washington couldn't resolve that. So uh, when um, 
your, your book, you talk about all these pillars that Washington established as the, the role of the president, the right. power of the president. And why didn't they just go away when Washington left office? I mean, why, when, when Washington was gone and Adams was president? Well, we were still in a state of crisis. Uh, in 1793, uh, the French Revolution had turned ugly. Uh, these uh, Jacobins, uh, radicals, had taken control of the revolution, taken control of the National Assembly, executed King Louis XVI and his queen Marie Antoinette, uh, and declared war on Britain. So now Britain and France are at war with each other, their navies are at war, and they are seizing American, uh, not just American, but all cargo ships to keep them from going into to enemy ports. Well, uh, they were, they were see, we were one of the largest shipping nations in the world at that point because we were, uh, uh, we had a, a just bottomless re natural resources that we were shipping everywhere. And they were uh, seizing or sinking hundreds of our ships, both the English and the French. Well, Americans took sides. There were those in favor of the French, those in favor of the, of the English, and there were riots. Uh, everywhere in, 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 in the cities uh, and towns of the United States with uh, Anglophiles, uh, England by then was our biggest trading partner, saying we should go to war uh, against the French and prevent the French from seizing our ships. And pro-French uh, citizens who recalled the France as our great ally, uh, who had saved saved us from the tyranny of England, we should go to war on the side of the French. Where did Washington lean? Uh, well, uh, Washington initially was in favor of the French Revolution until it turned ugly. You, you have in uh, a scene where in his office he has a bust of King Louis, King Louis the Sixteenth, who, was, uh, who had, uh, was uh, the French leader who sent troops to help us win our independence. Well, it just so happened in the spring of 1793, the French revolutionary government sent over a new ambassador, uh, Edmond Genet, and uh, with secret instructions to foment a French-style revolution in the United States and overthrow the Washington administration. Well, he gets over here and starts har haranguing crowds and, and uh, uh, getting the, the people in riots. John Adams uh, said, uh, described 10,000 rioters threatening to drag Washington out of the presidential mansion here in Philadelphia. Uh, it was it was runaway uh, anarchy. Uh, Where did Jefferson come down in this? Well, Jefferson was was, was still Secretary of State, and uh, he was very. He had been ambassador to France at the time of the the Revolu French Revolution broke out in 1789, and was very pro. Uh, revolutionary. Uh, he said better than half the world when uh, th this, this butchery was going on in France and sending thousands to the guillotine without trial, uh, he said better than half the world uh, should die uh, than this revolution fail. Uh, he hated monarchy and he was in favor of the French Revolution. So much so that when Genet comes over here and foments all these riots, uh, he tries to convince Washington uh, something to the effect that uh, uh, nothing, Genet's motives are the purest uh, conceivable motives, that uh, he has, uh, means no harm to the American people, uh, which was nonsense, and, and Washington knew it, and 
uh, really fired Jefferson. Jefferson resigned at the end of the year. Uh, but now he's faced with these riots. And as I said, the Constitution gave him, uh, well, I don't think I did say, but the Constitution gave him no law enforcement power. It said he is to execute the laws of the United States, but gave him no law enforcement powers, no law enforcement arm, and no powers to arrest or imprison or do anything. So he's almost helpless in the face of these riots and decides to act the only way he can. And it's totally unconstitutional. He issues a presidential proclamation, which has the force of law. The president can't pass a law. That's why they call Congress a legislature. Only Congress can pass a law. President uh, Washington issued the first presidential proclamation in American history. Uh, they call it executive orders now, except on Thanksgiving Day. That's still a proclamation. Uh, but he declared the nation neutral and prohibited Americans from uh, taking sides, either going on either side, either the English or the French and uh, hoped that, that Americans who were not involved in these riots would back him and get behind him, uh, and that the Congress would do so also. When Congress uh, returned, uh, it then turned into law the Neutrality Proclamation. It was called the Neutrality Act. Uh, and that uh, and, and the American people did. They were tired of these riots. It was, d it was disrupting uh, daily life in, in, in cities like Philadelphia. I mean, imagine even today, if 10,000 rioters were in the streets, what it would do to life in the city. How close did the country come to having a French Revolution-style thing happen here as, from well, those riots? Uh, a, a year later, in 1794, in western Pennsylvania, uh, farmers uh, were hit with a, uh, a whiskey tax, 25% tax on stills. And uh, they, uh, Western, Western farmer, farmers west of the Appalachian Mountains especially, uh, were hard hit by this tax. They, they were largely grain farmers out there, and there were no roads over the Appalachian Mountains, uh, and they couldn't they couldn't transport, and the markets were here in the east, so they couldn't transport their grains in bulk over the Appalachian Mountains, so they started uh, distilling uh, their grains into whiskey, which they could put in jugs and barrels and carry on, on mules on the mountain, across the mountain trails to eastern markets. So they saw this tax, 25% tax, uh, that would wipe out uh, their profits. It was a threat to their uh, existence. And uh, they, the first tax collectors got over there, and they, and they met them uh, first uh, with uh, tar and feathers, and finally gunfire. Uh, and, and, and then soon they massed, uh, some 5,000 of them massed outside of Pittsburgh, and uh, threatened to march to Philadelphia to overthrow uh, the Washington administration. So there were actually people killed during the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, the, 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 the tax collectors. And several tax collectors were killed. Uh, probably other people were killed who just we just don't know their names. Does, does being tarred and feathered necessarily mean you die because you're tarred and feathered? Not really. Uh, you you certainly were badly injured, but uh, you didn't have to die with tar, tar and feathers. Some, many people survived it. Uh, at any rate, Washington did the unthinkable. Uh, 
he called up 13,000 troops and ordered them to march on Pittsburgh, on the Whiskey Rebellion, and crush the Whiskey Rebellion. Here was Washington, who had led tax protests against the British 30 years earlier, now sending troops, just as the British had done, to crush uh, tax protests by American citizens. Uh, a legitimate right to for, uh, protest for redress of grievances under the Constitution. But Washington was going to preserve the government and the Union and, in effect, the Constitution. By the time the Army got out, out there, uh, the protesters all backed off and ran home to their, their own farms. So there was no uh, battle. Uh, they, uh, the troops were uh, rounded up uh, 20 drunks and brought them back to Philadelphia as prisoners. Uh, 18 of them were acquitted. Uh, two were convicted, and Washington pardoned them both. But here was the first uh, here was the first exercise of law enforcement powers by a president of the United States using troops uh, to uh, put down uh, a violation of the Constitution. And he said, if if a minority is allowed to dictate to the majority, uh, there is no hope for preserving uh, life, liberty, and property of the rest of the people. And uh, this is what this is what we we almost saw with the Tea Party recently. Uh, and they shut down Congress and created a, a crisis, a minority. Uh, Washington would never have permitted that, and he didn't. And with, in setting precedents, I mentioned the Neutrality Proclamation, in issuing the first presidential proclamation in history, he set the precedent that Lincoln followed in issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, in sending troops to put down uh, a, 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 a rebellion against American laws. Uh, Washington set a precedent that Dwight D. Eisenhower used in Little Rock, sending troops in Little Rock uh, to uh, enforce a Supreme Court decision allowing uh, black children to go to school with white children. Did Washington have opposition in Congress? Were there people the who were all the time, all the time? And he wasn't he wasn't hands off the because he was George Washington. They felt comfortable criticizing. Well, uh, him. by the end of his administration, all of these seizures of all these powers, these constitutional powers that had been reserved to the Congress. Uh, he was getting a lot of criticism from the press. Uh, one newspaper in, in, uh, uh, in Philadelphia, the Aurora, uh, whose editor and publisher was uh, Benjamin Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bache, uh, uh, told uh, Washington, don't even think about running again. <laughs> uh, we don't need you. You're a danger to this society. Uh, at one uh, occasion here in Philadelphia at a banquet, uh, somebody proposed a death, uh, a, a toast to the death of George Washington. This was unheard. And he was deeply hurt by all this. Uh, obviously, he loved his country, had fought for his country, uh, had served his country almost his entire life. He was deeply hurt. And, uh, uh, but in the end, uh, the American people revered him his last birthday in office. They used to uh, uh, celebrate the birth night because farmers had to work during the day. They couldn't uh, go into town and celebrate. And uh, the, the, the entire nation 
uh, celebrated his birth night. But he had set these precedents, you see, and by now Congress was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. The president was getting stronger and stronger. John Adams com comes into power. We still have this problem with uh, England and France sinking our ships overseas, or uh, on the Atlantic Ocean. And Adams uh, rams through uh, the Congress the Alien and Sedition Act, uh, which uh, in effect suspended uh, uh, the Bill of Rights. It uh, outlawed free speech and free press. Uh, it could not criticize the President or the Congress or the United States. And uh, a dozen journalists went to uh, prison. Uh, were convicted. One re representative, representative from Vermont, was put in prison for criticizing the president and his policies. And then Jefferson is even worse. He suspends habeas corpus, and uh, and then uh, by, I mean we're all grateful for this now, but he it was totally unconstitutional for him to make a deal to buy Louisiana. Uh, the, the Constitution says nothing about giving the president the right to buy foreign territory. Uh, your, the flap of your book says you've written six books about founding fathers? Yes. Which ones? Uh, John Hancock, uh, Noah Webster, uh, George, uh, uh, did another one on George Washington called uh, uh, the, the Unexpected uh, George Washington about his private life. Uh, very little has been done about his private life. Did you write about Thomas Jefferson? No. Uh, James Monroe, uh, uh, John Quincy Adams, uh, just actually John Quincy Adams was published last year, has just come out in paperback. But how does the popular view of Thomas Jefferson today match up with what Thomas Jefferson was really like? Well, uh, one thing you have to remember is that uh, children's history books, and by children I mean adolescents as well, high school and, and elementary school history books, are designed to make these youngsters good citizens. And you don't make uh, uh, German kids good citizens by talking a lot about Hitler, do you? <laughs> uh, and the, those books don't show the warts on our founding fathers. Jefferson is probably one of the worst presidents we've ever had in history. Uh, both as, as a man and as a, as a leader. Uh, here's a man who writes, all men are created equal, and goes home to his plantation and 200 slaves. Uh, he doesn't manumit his slaves. He doesn't free them in his will. Washington freed his slaves uh, in, in his will. And during his lifetime, uh, Virginia law prohibited uh, uh, slave owners from freeing their slaves. Uh, during his lifetime, he saw to it that all of his slaves, and Martha worked at this too, uh, learned trades and skills. Remember, you, Virginia was a different kind of, and the South was different, uh, the slavery problem it was a very, very difficult problem. Uh, many, many plantation owners, especially tobacco plantation owners in Virginia, did not want slavery. Uh, the, in, in the early 1700s, uh, there were very, very few slaves. Most of the slaves were sent, were, were shipped to the Caribbean islands, the West Indies, where they picked sugarcane. Tobacco is a very, very difficult crop to, to plant, to pick, and harvest, uh, and to treat after the harvest. It takes skilled workers. Uh, the, the slaves couldn't speak English. 
They had no skills. Uh, they were more of a burden. Uh, when Washington and 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 as I say, at the beginning of the 18th of the uh, 18th century, the early 1700s, there were only about uh, 10, 15,000 slaves in Virginia. By the time uh, and and the Virginia Burgesses, the House of Burgesses, voted to ban slavery in 1712. Queen Anne of Britain, good Queen Anne as she was called, overrode uh, the Virginians uh, because the slave trade was now uh, vital to the British economy. And so the slaves kept coming in. Uh, by the time our founding fathers were born, uh, you had over half a million of them now. Now what are you going to do for them? They were a burden. Washington, as I say, had uh, over 300 slaves. Of those 300 slaves, about one-third were babies. Another one-third were old and uh, crippled. So they were more of a burden. Washington still had to feed them all. They were more of a burden. They were not productive. Uh, but, as I say, law, the law of Virginia for, uh, prohibited their being freed. Uh, and worse than that, where would they go? What would they do? Uh, there were no cities in, in the South, except seaports. Inland and in plantation country, there were no cities. Each plantation was a self-sufficient unit. They made their own tools, their own clothes. I mean, they didn't need villages. So you went down the, uh, the end of the road of one plantation, you just met the beginning of the road to the next plantation. Where would these half million people have gone? What would they do? In the North, it was easy because you were the, 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 the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution were creating uh, manufacturing facilities. And it was easy for Massachusetts to free its slaves when they became independent because they could go to work as apprentices, get apprenticeships in various uh, manufacturing plants. There were textile plants, printing plants, uh, uh, lumber mills shipbuilding, shipyards, there were loads of industrial outlets where uh, uh, freed slaves, freemen, could uh, serve apprenticeships and learn a trade. That was impossible in the South. Well, what did Washington, uh, when Washington freed his slaves, what did they, uh, the freed Many slaves Many of them stayed do? on. He put in his will that they are to be uh, support. They can stay on as long as they want to at the expense of his estate. Uh, but they're free to go. Uh, and and they gradually drifted off. Uh, what happened to Jefferson's slaves? Uh, they 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 stayed with uh, the the estate until it was broken up, because he did not free his slaves. Now that, uh, uh, we were we were talking about Jefferson and and what a uh, terrible president, a, a terrible said. president he was. As I say, he didn't free his slaves. Also, in that Declaration of Independence, you may remember, it ends by saying we pledge our uh, lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Well, a lot of the people who signed that went to war. Jefferson went home to, uh, to his plantation. He never fired a shot during the war. And then when he became governor, he disobeyed orders from Washington to defend uh, the uh, uh, river outlets in the Chesapeake Bay. <coughs> and he allowed the British to sail up James, the James River and burn Richmond. Uh, as president, uh, he hounded his former vice president, Aaron Burr, uh, until Burr had to flee uh, the country. And the, the, 
then as vice president under Adams, <coughs> he came close to committing treason by uh, petitioning Kentucky uh, and, and sending Kentucky what they call the Kentucky Resolution, which said that Kentucky should uh, nullify any federal laws that it deemed unconstitutional. How did Washington and Jefferson get along? They didn't. They didn't. And as I say, Washington fired Jefferson in seven, at the end of 1793. There are a couple other pillars in your book that we haven't talked about. One is uh, government finances and the creation of the, well, you talked about uh, borrowing uh, money, but yes, you know, there's also the, the Bank of the United States that he created. Well, uh, the Bank of the United States uh, was really the, 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 the uh, idea of uh, Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of Treasury. Uh, and uh, it was to avoid the president having to go to private banks and borrow money. <coughs> the idea came from the Bank of England early in the 18th century. England was broke. They had, been, they had fought so many wars, they had no more money in the treasury. Uh, their bonds, the government bonds, were worthless. Uh, so uh, the, uh, treasure, the equivalent of the Treasury Secretary at the time went to a bunch of private banks and said, look, why don't you fellows pool your money, pool some money in uh, a central bank, we'll call it the Bank of England, pool some money, buy up the, the, the bonds, on the open market that are worthless. You're buying the bonds. We'll start driving the prices up. By the time they finished buying the bonds, <laughs> they had soared in value. So now they start selling the bonds at the higher value and getting cash, which now the, the government can borrow from the Bank of England. So it, it was a scam. Mr. Hamilton. It's one of the biggest scams in, in, in world history. And we still play the same game. Federal Reserve Board is nothing more than uh, it was the, called the Bank of the United States when it was first founded. It, uh, it, uh, Congress refused to renew its charter after the uh, uh, War of 1812. Uh, then it, a second Bank of the United States was formed, and then uh, Jackson. Uh, President Jackson refused to renew its charter, and then finally the Federal Reserve Board was formed. Uh, but it's the same thing. Uh, here you have worthless paper. <laughs> Suddenly there's a rush to buy, and that rush to buy drives the prices up, and, and it keeps playing on itself, and then, and then they sell just little by little. <laughs> well, some of us, peripherally related to that, you talk about... Um the, the war debt for federal and state debt that had been built up. And you say, during 15 years of Revolutionary War and Confederation, the government had paid soldiers, farmers, craftsmen, and other citizens with government IOUs, which they, in turn, had resold to bankers, merchants, and speculators for whatever they could get, seldom more than 50% and sometimes as less than 10%. So you have a Revolutionary War soldier who's owed a pension, sells it to a speculator for 10 cents on the dollar, and then the federal government buys it for full price? Well, that's what happened. Uh, but remember that the, uh, the farmers and the, the former soldiers, the veterans, with these Continentals, as they were called, 
had no use for them. No one would take them. Uh, th th this was not a cash society. Uh, there, there, there was no cu uh, currency anywhere. Uh, what people did was they lived, uh, it was a barter society. And uh, uh, farmers would, would uh, take some produce to market and buy some tools from a merchant. You, you had, uh, especially in the big cities, you had these huge uh, merchant bankers, they were called, uh, because in effect uh, they would trade, uh, they'd buy, say, someone's crop or even a future crop. And, and, and in exchange, give some dry goods uh, for the wife to turn into clothes, uh, tools. Uh, uh, so in, a, in effect, he was both a banker and a merchant, and they were called merchant bankers. Uh, the largest merchant banker in the United States uh, at the time of the Revolution was John Hancock, whose signature uh, is on the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he was up in Boston. We only have a few minutes left. I do want to ask you if you if you could have been present for any scene during Washington's presidency, what would you have liked to witness? I think I would have liked to have uh, witnessed him as a, in the field as a general, uh, order, ordering his uh, officers around and and, and running uh, that show because he was very very good at that. Uh, as as president, he had to. Uh, feel his way along uh, with each each crisis, and he never could be sure that it would turn out the way it did. He was very fortunate that he was George Washington and did have uh, the love and respect of the majority of American people, uh, so that they eventually fell in line uh, w with his precepts. Um, but I th I think. The most wonderful thing about Washington was uh, Washington, uh, the man himself. He co comes across super superficially as a very uh, cold, uh, domineering type of person. And uh, in his heart of hearts, he was a, a very loving, warm uh, man who uh, they, he and Martha raised uh, Martha's grandchildren from uh, infancy. Um, when he said farewell to his officers at Francis Tavern in New York at the end of the Revolutionary War, uh, he was in tears uh, when, uh, and he hated touching people, uh, but he embraced uh, Henry Knox, who had been his. Uh, Chief of Artillery, Major General Henry Knoxman, Chief of Artillery. He had a way with people he was close to to earn their trust and their love. Uh, uh, Henry Knox, for example, was this rotund <laughs> fellow who had no experience in artillery when he, when he signed on at Washington's headquarters in Cambridge. Uh, but he, he was a bookseller in Boston, and he had read a lot of engineering books. And uh, at Washington's behest, he, Knox ordered a, uh, organized a group of, of troops, and they went uh, westward to Ticonderoga, where uh, the Battle of Ticonderoga had already been fought, and there were leftover cannons there. 
and they dragged across the snow and ice in midwinter uh, several hundred cannons over to Boston, poised them up on the heights in Dor Dorchester and, and the heights overlooking Boston, and it forced the, the British to evacuate. And, and Washington adored Knox for that. Did George Washington ever enjoy being president? Not really. He, George Washington at heart was a farmer. He was uh, one of the great agricultural scientists of the Western world. He wrote learned papers about agriculture uh, for learn, learned scientific jur agricultural journals in Europe, always under either pseudonym or just left without a name because he didn't want uh, people to say, oh, well, uh, obviously they printed this because his name is George Washington. But he uh, ran an experimental part. He was the first farmer in America to uh, adopt a crop rotation. Tobacco uses up all the so nutrients of the soil after, after six years. It, it just turns into desert. Well, he knew that, and, and that's why the, we, we kept expanding west. These plantation owners would just buy new, more land west, and, and they kept going west. And he went into the Ohio Valley as a young farmer to uh, uh, find land out there, stake out lands out there, and he suddenly realized to himself one night, that, uh, what do we do when we reach the, uh, uh, the, the, the Pacific Ocean? <laughs> and he thought about it, and he said, how the devil has little England, an island, kept fertile crops year after year after year after year? So he wrote to uh, British scientists, agricultural scientists, and learned about crop rotation, and started crop rotations, and did experiments uh, that finally got down to six crops where he would rotate the crops and Mount Vernon became one of the most fertile uh, plantations in, in, in the United States. If you could talk to George Washington, what would you ask him? Uh, what, what, what he would do today, but I, uh, I think I know what he would do today. <laughs> he would have put some of those Tea Party people in jail. <laughs> uh, he would have ordered the Congress to pass a budget and, and told him, you, 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 you stay in session until you pass the budget. And if you try to recess, I'll call you in a special session. He would have acted. He, he was tempered by war, by battle, by war. He was hard-nosed and a decision-maker. Uh, he never, he did not let a day in his administration go by uh, with problems unsolved. Well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Harlow Giles Unger. He is the author of this book, Mr. President, George Washington and the Making of the Nation's Highest Office. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.